Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is my friend and co-host, as always, the fifth Ghostbuster, maybe, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm Venkman. I have to be Venkman. You are, you're Venkman. You can't be Venkman. <laughs> I always wanted to be Lewis. Lewis is kind of cool, you know, because he was yeah. nerdy and... He was a great accountant, but he was never a Ghostbuster. The gatekeeper? Was he the gatekeeper or was he the key master? I think he was the key master. That's right. I don't remember. Yes, he was a key master because Dana would ask, are you the key master? And right. anyway, we're not talking about Ghostbusters. Yeah. And although it plays an important role in the uh, conversation we're about to have. So it's it not does. completely it's not completely out of context. It's not arbitrary. We're not just randomly throwing yeah. movie references at you to try to be clever. We are really trying to push the episode's uh, <laughs> premise, at least to an extent. Here we are. We're talking episode two of season two of Stranger Things, Trick or Treat Freak. Great. Uh, or chapter two. I guess we're going to... We're, we're just going to keep going back and forth. I call it a season, even though they don't refer to it as season. But you know it. We know it. We're here. So let's get into the conversation, because that's why you're here. That's why we're all here, to join the conversation. So. Yeah, it's officially, in quotes, the episode title is Chapter 2, colon, Trick or Treat Freak, which is interesting because they put that Chapter 2 as part of the title, kind of like Star Wars Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. Like, that's the whole title. You know, the Episode 1 is part of the title. So <laughs> they, they thankfully gave up that idea with the uh, sequel trilogy. Yeah, gave up on the episode numbers, but I like that they do it this way. I think it's kind of nice. It helps to clarify where you are in the story inside the episode title. Yeah. And I'll say this as a sidebar, the podcast that I co-host at another juncture, Feel and Film, we probably have a psychological block for not covering any really a lot of the Star Wars movies we've recorded. I think we've covered we've covered the, the last three episodes seven through nine. But I think one of the reasons that we don't cover the first three is because they are a pain in the rear to put on a, on a banner that's going to advertise them. So like we have like, if the episode is episode 388, it's going to be episode 388, Star Wars, colon, episode one, colon. I mean, there's like too many colons. I think there's a dash in there. I think Oh, it grammatically, does, yeah. you have to do colon, and then you can't do two colons in a row. If, if I understand grammar correctly or style guides correctly, you have to do a colon, and then after the colon, you if you have an additional like subtitle or extension of the title, you use a dash. <laughs> so, it's too much. So much it's work. Just too much for me. Yeah. And then we get into web pages, which is just colon backslash backslash or forward slash forward slash. That's and, a whole other. Yeah. yeah. Are you guys still with us listening? Or have you yeah. changed the channel? Uh, sorry. So chapter two, <laughs> Trick or Treat Freak, directed by the Duffer Brothers, as was the last episode. We're, we're getting uh, two back-to-back episodes by the show creators and the individuals that really have devised this world and given us all these great characters. And yeah, here we are, uh, back for Halloween, essentially. Yeah. It's a day in the life of Hawkins, Indiana. 
on Halloween night. I was uh, I was excited to see this. When this came out initially, I remember the advertisements for it. And specifically, I remember seeing these four guys in Ghostbusters <laughs> outfits. Even having not seen the first part, the first season, mm-hmm. I'm just going to refer to it as a season. Even having not seen the first season, I wanted to watch that particular episode or whatever episode <laughs> that image took place in because it's just so cool. And we'll, of course, get into all that. But I wasn't disappointed with this one, Adam. It was a, a great follow-up to the premiere. I thought while the premiere set up so many characters, like where are they at? Who's new? This gets us right back in to everything happening in Hawkins. And I think that that's what makes this series so good is that it's very efficient at introducing and then pushing, introducing and then pushing. This episode wasn't as exciting. There wasn't a lot of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happening. There were moments, but this felt like a good, solid Stranger Things bar of like goodness for me. And I was like, yeah, "Yeah, this is a great follow-up and I'm excited to start talking about it. Yeah. And I agree because there's just very little filler in these episodes. There's not a lot of just sort of weird downtime where the characters are having a conversation that doesn't really relate to anything. There are some shows that I love that just have dull episodes or down episodes where you're kind of like, was that really necessary? This just doesn't have that. It just feels like everything is very purposefully placed and everything means something. Everything is going to pay off later in an important way. You may not know it right away, but it's all going to come together at some point. So I think it's really solid. This is a really great second episode. As you said, it kind of picks up right where the other episode left off. It has sort of a cold open where we're introduced to um, a little bit of Elle's backstory. And it is interesting, too, because in the last episode, she really isn't in it at all. She's in it for like a couple minutes at the very end when we're reintroduced to her that she is alive, that she's staying in Hopper's cabin in the woods. That's really it. So she didn't get any real screen time last episode. This episode, we get a lot more of her character and we get a lot of flashbacks about how she got to where she is now. Yeah, it was smart to have that cold open. This episode centering around Halloween, it came complete with several jump scares, which I thought were really yes. appropriate, effective, and lots of fun. The very beginning, when we start watching it, we hear a little bit of an echo, like, oh, it's oh, it's from season one. And then we get the... <laughs> you know, we get her face. She's waking up in the Upside Down, and we find you know, more of that set, which I think is just fantastic. I don't think it's ever going to get old seeing the upside down in comparison to the real world. And she cuts that hole in, or she sees that hole cut where apparently we're getting right at the end of all this, like all the chaos has happened. And I guess the Demogorgon's Gorman, Demogorgon has been destroyed. (laughs) And now we get her escaping. And the whole time I'm wondering, is she going to get attacked? What's happening? But we, of course, we know that she's fine because we see her in the end of the first episode. But I like that we get a good push of her story. And I think that that was deliberate. You know, we got everybody else. She's not the most important character. And obviously the season premiere let us know that she's not the only one with power. She's not the only triple digit child that is in existence. It doesn't diminish the value of her character, but I think it was really a great choice for the Duffer Brothers to not try to fit all that into the premiere episode. We had to get a lot of people introduced. We had to reintroduce some. And so now using flashbacks, we get to see she's at Hopper's cabin 
but she started out at the school. How did she get there? And so the method by which we get there, nothing crazy important happened leading up to a flashback, but it was just a gentle reminder. So we get yeah. the, the squirrel that she hears outside. We find out that she is trying to scavenge for food. And, and really, we get kind of Savage 11 here. She doesn't have any kind of center line with Mike. You know, he anchors her, as we know from the first season. And so throughout the episode, we see her just kind of, you know, ravaging for food. She kills a squirrel, is eating it, and then she knocks out the hunter and takes his clothing. So it's all for good reason. I mean, we don't right. think that she's just being a savage for the sake of being a savage. She's in survival mode, basically. Yes. You know, just... Yeah, it's a better word. And so I think a lot of that really informs why she's where she's at and really kind of why she's being protected. So we see that start out the episode. She goes over to Mike's house. There's this really great sequence that makes me laugh. The camera goes through Mike's house. Everybody's being questioned. The agent is talking to Mike's dad, and he says, the most important thing is to go on with your lives. And then he says, and to keep this, and his dad interrupts like he knows what's, what's up. He says, so you keep all of this top secret. Yeah. Understood. We're all patriots in this house. And it's just another reminder of how goofy he is. And I just, I love this character. He's such, he such great levity in subtle ways. Right. But this is also that scene that helps us kind of remind us that Mike has this really great connection with Elle. And yeah. I thought that that's a great introduction as well, is to kind of realize that Mike was, you know, we, we hinted that in the first episode where he's trying to contact her. We see why he's on that frequency. Dustin asked him twice, why are you still on that frequency? And it turns out that he's really trying to reach out to her to try to get in touch with her. Yeah, it's like he hasn't been able to let go of the fact that she might be dead. Almost like a person going to a cemetery and talking to a gravestone of somebody that has passed away. It's sort of therapeutic to keep talking to them and telling them stories, telling them what you've been up to. But at least in this case, because they never found a body, Mike has this sort of glimmer of hope that maybe especially because she has these abilities, maybe she's out there somewhere. But I think it's interesting, well, two things. One, in that upside-down opening, when she kind of uses her powers to widen that hole in the school wall to kind of get back into the right side up. Is that, is that our world? Uh, <laughs> yeah. The 616. Wait, that's a different series altogether. Yeah. <laughs> I think that what interests me here is that she opened it up, but did it close back up on its own? Or is that just now an open rift in the school? Are they going to cover that up with like a, a school spirit banner or something? And just be like, yeah, yeah, there's a <laughs> the hole upside down back there. But don't worry about it. There's, uh, you know. Why is Go Team oozing? What's up with that? Yeah, exactly. weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know some of the other holes have sealed up on their own, like in the tree and things. So maybe that's what we're supposed to think but because she used her powers to widen it it makes me wonder if that's a loose end that has yet to be resolved i don't know i wonder if andy dufresne's gonna get in there and try to tunnel his way out of the <laughs> yeah. out of our world into the upside down <laughs> uh, that's a good point that's a different kind of redemption <laughs> yeah but uh yeah so back to mike's house though real quick i just wanted to say that um those agents that you were mentioning they're basically telling everyone in the family, you know, the parents and everybody, this sort of cover story about Eleven essentially being part of a Soviet plot or conspiracy. It's interesting because in the first episode of the season, that's what Murray is saying to Hopper. So somehow that cover story, which is supposed to be, quote unquote, top secret, has leaked somewhere out to certain people. That's sort of a great example of how the government can use misdirection 
Like they're telling everybody, here's what really happened, but it's a secret. Don't tell anyone. So anyone in doing an investigation is going down the wrong path, even though they think they're on the right path to some yeah. conspiracy. It totally throws, in this case, Murray off the scent of you know what really happened, that there's this whole parallel dimension. So it's just mm-hmm. interesting how these little subtle things are woven together. Well, and I think some of it, Adam, is that misdirection. But also, if we step back and actually said the truth of what happened, that there's this weird world that has crazy monsters, do you think anybody's going to believe that? Probably not. Yeah. Or you have hard evidence to back it up. And clearly, that's hard to do unless you take them Mm -hmm. through one of those gates and (laughs) show them the upside down. So it's, let's go on a tour of the upside down. You can see very everything. good point. Yeah. They made up a story that was believable enough in the height of the Cold War. Right. And that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's I think it's a great tactic. I mean, it would be something yeah. that our government could probably do today and probably has done today. Yeah. Just giving us a believable yeah. story that feels a little bit nefarious, that we would feel empowered to keep the secret, even though if, if we couldn't, it wouldn't be harmful. It's right. um not out of the realm of possibility. Or they might even expect us to leak it, and that's fine, because at least we'll be going in the opposite direction of the real truth, and that's the goal, is just to keep people as far away from the unbelievable truth by sending them on a wild goose chase, essentially. Anyway, it's just a little side thing that came to mind watching this, that they really have this down, this whole uh, conspiracy plot. Because, you know, this is a whole town that experienced a lot. And they had to figure out a way they couldn't kill everybody. That's part of the problem, right? Is that in the first season, too many people were witness to too many bizarre things. And they had to come up with something believable, something that they could tell the patriotic citizens to keep, you know, keep the lid on. So it's a fun uh, little story that they cooked up. Yeah. Catering to that patriotism. Exactly. It's It's a good strategy. So after the credits, we hop on to the scene at Jim's cabin, which let me just say, this looks like something out of Friday the 13th. This cabin looks scary. I would yeah. not want to visit it. I feel like there are scary old people that have hatchets and things like that. And you could probably argue that Jim is close to that. I mean, he is living living his best life inside this really rundown <laughs> cabin. But I guess it's an upgrade from his trailer that he basically destroyed in season one. I mean, is it an upgrade, though? <laughs> I, is this, well, it's got French toast that he's making with well, some Mrs. Yeah. Butterworths. I mean... He had, a, he had a water view before. He did. <laughs> That's true. He did. <laughs> that he could go out on the porch or something and smoke with his shirt off at night. Yeah, exactly. You know, just doesn't have that anymore. You know, he's got a child living in, in the he, house. He, uh, Yeah. But he clearly likes to be in a remote location, even without covering up the existence of a of a young girl with powers. He just likes these yeah. remote lakeside or woodland residences. Scary woods. Just call it yeah. scary woods, man. Yeah, That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> this scene gives us a little bit of insight on their relationship, a little bit more about this kind of set of rules and regulations that he set up. We got a hint of that in the last episode, but this really kind yeah. of comes to fruition. This is another moment where we get a great jump scare, where she's in the ghost outfit. Oh, Jesus. Ghost. She wants to go trick-or-treating, and she makes a good point, Adam. She says, look, I could go trick-or-treating. No one would know the difference. No one would be the wiser. And I agree to an extent, but when you play that out, Hopper's the one going with her. People are going to wonder, who is that under the sheet with Hopper? 
you know, it's not Mike, it's not Will. <laughs> they're, they're obviously in different outfits. So yes, there will be questions. And so I can appreciate the fact that it's a risk. Yes, I agree with that. But it's also logically not the best thing to do because it would draw more attention knowing that Hopper basically lives by himself. He's a hermit. So having a ghost with him, yeah, that would cause some questions. Yeah, it would be almost safer if he just dropped her off in the edge of town in her costume and let her go trick-or-treating for an hour and then met her back there. If she was just wandering around by herself in that costume, <laughs> no one would think anything of it. Lone kid? <laughs> that is so weird. No, no. I would go back to my house if I saw that. That's just, that's scary to me. I don't care if you're in a sheet. That's just a lone ghost. In t- no. I can just imagine her using her powers to get the candy. If she didn't like the uh, the the fun size bar, she would just like use her powers to knock the whole basket over or something like that. Right? <laughs> be like right. trick or treat freak. You know, she'd be the one to say that. <laughs> so he puts her in a position where he teaches her a new word. I guess they have a word of the day. It's part of their relationship. Compromise. I like that he calls it. She wants him to spell it essentially, and he goes C O M promise. That yeah. word comes back really to haunt him later on, this idea of a promise. I want to say that hints back at season one, this idea of friends keeping their promises, friends being there for each other. And I think that she latched onto that. You know, he says, I'll be back by 515. And I'm like, you totally won't. So we can chalk that up to what will we look forward to later in the episode? Jim letting 11 down. And of course he does. We'll get there. And then we move over to the buyer house where what are the other kids doing? <laughs> I think what intrigued me about this scene, Adam, is that I think there was an intentionality in letting it feel like a similar scene early in the last season where Joyce is looking for Will. We know that he's been abducted or that he's disappeared. And that panic starts coming over her again. It's almost like it was recreated shot for yeah. shot. You've got Jonathan making breakfast. She's getting ready to go to work. And the music sort of builds a little bit. And where does she find him? He's peeing in the bathroom. (laughs) It's partly played for last, but partly like showing us that she is still nervous. She's still panicked about being without him. In fact, later on, she tells Bob in a great conversation that she feels so uncomfortable when he's not with her. It's not abnormal, but it's probably a little bit unhealthy to be a little bit more than a helicopter parent. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. she's got like a whole fleet of helicopters, I think, at this point for for him. <laughs> yeah. But it was a great way to sort of start introducing some of her paranoia, some of her discomfort when she's not able to see him 24-7. Yeah, yeah. I thought Winona Ryder did a really good job in that scene of really showing her panic kicking in because it was everything was identical to what happened in the first season and you could feel it you could feel the genuine like what what and you could almost guess what she was going to say yet you know next because you knew where her head was yeah she also sees will's drawing that yeah i don't remember him actually doing that drawing but of course we remember him seeing that vision seeing it yeah and uh we get another reminder of what i think is probably one of the cooler creatures i mean it's definitely not a demogorgon But as I mentioned last episode, it harkens back to the Cloverfield monster, the 10 Cloverfield Lane monster. It's very much classic sci-fi, which I think is is very fitting for this time period. But I like that we're not getting, at least at this point, Demogorgon's 2.0. We're not getting, oh, it's not over yet. The Demogorgon's still alive. 
this is a lot of that mystery that we're getting wrapped up in now. Like, oh, there's a new threat. It's not just the upside down itself. Maybe the Demogorgons were like guard dogs for this greater thing. And I don't, these are some other questions that are going through my head as I'm watching sure, this. Yeah. But she sees Will's drawing and the scene cuts over to probably one of the better montages of television, which is this Ghostbusters <laughs> getting ready to go out and trick or treat or get getting ready for the day. All four of these kids are dressing up as Ghostbusters. And I love the different cameras and the different types of photos that we sort of see as the stills where we have like Jonathan's camera taking pretty good shots and then we see Dustin's mom calling out his irresistible pearls. So clearly yeah. he's not the only one that thinks he has irresistible pearls. She loves the pearls. And then I think probably the icing on the cake for me is Lucas getting crap from his sister while his mom's taking pictures and she's just kind of mouthing the word nerd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so good. And without... Without giving anything away, I'll just say that she will play an important role in the future of Stranger Things. Awesome. So awesome. This is her, I think, her first sort of big introduction, and uh, we'll we'll see more of her in the future. But yeah, I love that there was a, I think it was Mike's mom had the Polaroid camera, which yeah. you know, so many parents had at that time. It was amazing. You could get an instant photograph. I mean, you didn't have to take your role to the photo mat and have it developed and pick it up a week later and the the set not the set but the production design on that i don't really know what that effect is called or how it's done in post but this idea of taking a photo and then digitally creating a photo with you know sepia and whatnot i thought that was really great because i felt like these were actual photos that were taken that they just threw up on screen of course they didn't but I mean, you never know. They could have been creative and decided, let's get some real cameras from the era. Let's take some actual photographs. Let's scan them. You know, I mean, I'm not saying they did that, but they had a bigger budget this season than the first. So who knows? Maybe they, they went all out and went authentic. I think the Polaroid looks like a legitimate Polaroid. That's why I say that. It, there's something about the way it captures an image. It just it had some authenticity to it. But that's not to say that you can't fake that, that you can't you know do that in post and make it look that way. But it's yeah. uh, anything's possible. Yep. Well, the uh, the Ghostbusters didn't get to school. We see that not everybody is dressed up like they're supposed to be right. in terms of. Uh, well, first, with the Ghostbusters individually, we have two Vinkmans that are on the scene as opposed to a Winston. And there's that great dialogue. I love the dialogue between Lucas and Mike where they're actually complaining about who actually should be Vinkman and who should be Winston. What? Why are you Vinkman? Because I'm Vinkman. No, I'm Vinkman. Why can't there just be two Vinkmans? Because there's only one Vinkman in real life. We planned this months ago. I'm Vinkman, Dustin Stans, you're Egon, and you're Winston. I specifically didn't agree to Winston. Yes, you did. I don't think he did. No one wants to be Winston, man. What's wrong with Winston? What's wrong with Winston? He joined the team super late. He's not funny, and he's not even a scientist. Yeah, but he's so cool. If he's cool, then you be Winston. I can't. Why not? Because because you're not black? I didn't say that. You thought it. And, um, you know, Lucas makes a good argument. And the writers just become so obvious. Like, let's just just call this out. Let's make fun of this. Because the fact is, you've got one black Ghostbuster. You've got this one black kid in this group of four. And I love that they turn that on its head. Right. Then that leads to the bigger issue that Dustin points out, which is that nobody in school is dressed up. 
I wanted to ask you, but was that ever answered why? They mentioned that everyone dressed up last year, and I think it's just the idea that it's no longer cool. They got a year older, and now everyone's like, yeah, we're, we're too old for that. We're too cool to dress up for Halloween. And these are obviously the, the kids that push it a little too far. <laughs> Most kids are kind of outgrowing trick-or-treating, but they're still doing it, and they're still going to school excited. You know, they're enjoying it. They're enjoying being kids, whereas I think the vast majority of their classmates are just they're focused on boys and girls and typical growing up adolescent things that these four kids just don't care about yet. I think there's two levels to this, though. I think there's the too cool to dress up, which I think there's like this curve where you're like, dress up, dress up, I'm too cool. And then you get to be like our age, and you get to the 30s and 40s and you're like, hey, it's pretty cool to dress up for Halloween again. But then you're kind of like this pop culture person, right. like, you know. I'm going to be Ross from Friends episode 48, the one about the blah, 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 or something. Yeah, right, right. But I think the other thing is that clearly people still like going trick-or-treating because the town is just full of trick-or-treaters. So Right. It's going to school, I think, is the key. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess I get that. You know, in some ways, it would seem that dressing up for Halloween kind of destroys your ability to talk to girls, as we see with both Lucas and Dustin. I think we're starting to see little hints of the fact that they both kind of have a crush on Mad Max. Uh, they obviously yeah. find her intellectually attractive, or at least from a gaming standpoint, she's legit. Right. And um, this scene is so funny from just a production standpoint. It's so cool because here they are talking, and there's what I would call the the love theme or the theme that's played. It's a lighthearted kind of piano. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about okay, we need to we need to make our move now. I love that Dustin's the one that's like we got to do this, and then it cuts to her shutting her locker door and leaving, and then the music just cuts off, and then there's yeah. a beat, and then they're like, we could ask her after class. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I love that nonverbal humor that plays out in shows like this. It's really, really yeah. cool. Yeah. I love how Dustin says, let's engage and like, they're going to do it. And then they just, neither of them moves, neither of them says anything. They just stand there. <laughs> and that's so typical of this kind of awkward age. Like you just don't know how to quote unquote engage. <laughs> it's just, this is their first time right. kind of talking to a girl that they actually kind of like. And, in a way that might go beyond just being a classmate, right? They just think she's cool and they want to get to know her. They want to include her in their activities and their fun. And they're not yeah. quite sure how to break the ice there. They're not, they're not sure what they need to say to get her excited. Her, her reaction is great, though. She's totally messing with them and, <laughs> and she's loving it. You know, she, can, she knows yeah. that they're stalkers. She calls them stalkers. And that, that scene plays out, uh, it, it pays off later on when they finally do get to talk to her. Right. Again, I think Dustin has the chops for being the guy that is not going to be afraid <laughs> to talk to girls in, in his adult life. Like, he's just going to be that guy. He's not going to be afraid. He's got the impressive pearls, as he says. <laughs> but he is very resourceful. Like, when they're talking to her and they're trying to get her to go trick-or-treating with them – they make it sound like it's this big deal, like, hey, we go to the rich people's neighborhood, they give us full-size candy bars, and you know, if you stick with us, you're going to get that. Uh, they even give her, like, we're, we're going to meet here at 7 p.m. on the dot, don't be late. Like, they take this seriously. 
Yeah. But as they're walking, or as they're trying to convince her, Dustin in full costume, you know, she's like, oh, yeah, I can tell from your proton bags. Like, well, th- those don't work. Like, of course, like, whatever, <laughs> Dustin. You're so naive. But then he holds up his uh, ghost trap and he's like, check this out. He uses it to try to impress her. And look, it impressed me. That's a cool accessory to have yeah. on your person here, the, the trap that actually opens. And he clearly built it himself, which is yes. kind of cool. I mean, this isn't yeah. just something he bought in a store. It's not a prop. They all built their costumes, clearly. They, yes. These are homemade and pretty good looking, I have to say. But I like the fact that they're not all the exact same. Like the, the no. actual jumpsuits all look a little bit different. So you can mm-hmm. tell that the moms went to different mm-hmm. places to get as close. And I think that creates a level of authenticity to these costumes or these outfits. And that's what makes them so appealing is it's not like you went to Walmart or went to a costume shop right. and you bought a Winston. Well, nobody bought a Winston one, apparently, but you bought a Vinkman or you bought a, an Egon a Spengler. You know, you didn't do that. You had your parents right. make it. And you look at the patch on the, on the side there and it looks amazing. And Joyce was that she was sewing this, I think, in the first episode or maybe early right, in the second yeah. episode. but While at work at the pharmacy. Yeah, yeah, before Bob comes up and starts mugging out with her, you know, making, yeah. you know, <laughs> making, <laughs> doing his thing. But anyway, yeah. That's, but yeah, I, I love, I love their banter with her that leads to her engaging with her brother, who we mm-hmm. actually get a little extended scene with him. Like we get to know him. He is, well, he's just nuts, man. He yeah. absolutely just scares me uh, when he's on screen. She gets in the car with him. The way in which he talks to her, it's more than just brother-sister banter. Like, something's gone on, and it's hinted at as they're in the car, which we find out apparently something has brought them to Hawkins or taken them away from California. Right. She believes that it's his fault, and he's blaming her, and that's all we get. So yeah. that's another level of intrigue that I think is going to pay itself off later. But that's a rhetorical question I have at this point is, you know, what's up with him? Why, what happened to bring them to Hawkins? Which we would ask that eventually, but clearly there's tension between the two of them that I think is going to probably blow up a little bit later at some point in the season. Yeah, definitely. And I think, uh, like you mentioned, he he's kind of insane. There's something not right. <laughs> in him because he sees the boys in their costumes on their bikes down the road and he like accelerates just to get to his <laughs> sister just to piss her yeah. off like he's gonna run them over and he says like bonus points if i hit all three in one go and i think that's a reference to the toxic avenger which came out like a year or two before this where they're the bullies are riding around town trying to hit kids on bikes it's just like a weird movie from like trauma films that about this nerdy kid that gets transformed and mutated into this grotesque like superhero of sorts. But anyway, I think it's a little nod to that film because it's around the the time that that movie would have come out. But he obviously doesn't hit any of the kids, but they do kind of veer off the road and fall down. And uh, and they can tell Mad Max was in the car and they know it was her. So that's kind of an interesting point. And they don't know if, if she was trying to run them over or if they don't understand the relationship with her and, and her brother. So they don't understand why they were behaving this way. Yeah. And I think that when I was watching it the second time, mm-hmm. I was trying to see, was there any kind of residual effect from that? And I don't think anybody, but Mike had ill will towards her when they met up with her at trick or treating which they weren't expecting. Yeah, I think that's yeah. that might be it, is that maybe they weren't expecting 
after that incident, maybe they kind of mentally just wrote her off. Like she's not showing, you know, she's, she she wants nothing to do with us. (laughs) I mean, she and her brother almost (laughs) ran us off the road. So they were clearly surprised when she showed up and she showed up not just excited, but she was like leading the charge almost to go, (laughs) to go find bigger and better houses to trick or treat at. (laughs) And that Michael Myers mask. That was a great, that was a great touch. Another great jump scare in this show. Yeah. Oh, before that, they're they're going from house to house, and they're referred to as exterminators. I think by one of the right. people, one of the one of the neighbors, which just offends them completely. And there's that whole conversation about nougat. If I get another Three Musketeers, I'm gonna kill myself. What's wrong with Three Musketeers? What's wrong with Three Musketeers? Don't watch Three Musketeers. Yeah, it's just nougat. Oh, just nougat, just nougat. It is top three for me. Top three. Top. Three. Oh God, give me a break. Seriously, I could just eat like a whole bowl of nougat. Then we get that great jump scare. Oh. <laughs> and she says, who screamed like a little girl? Or, oh, and you screamed like a little girl. And I, and I actually asked the question, was it Mike that screamed? Or was it was it Will? Because I couldn't tell who it was that screamed like a little girl, but I thought it was a great, great line by her. It might have been both of them. I'm not quite sure, but I think they all got a little a little startled by that. Yeah. They were yeah. in the thick of that conversation about nougat, so they were not prepared for her to jump out like that. <laughs> and I have to I have to agree though, Three Musketeers is a little bland. It needs something else. It's it needs caramel, which is basically what a Milky Way is, right? Milky yeah. Ways are basically three musketeers of caramel. And that extra <laughs> component makes the difference. <laughs> I would agree. I think you can only have a limited amount of nougat before you start feeling bad about yourself because that's it's just, just yeah it's just too chocolatey <laughs> yeah yeah just and the word nougat just doesn't I mean I don't think when I think of yeah. great candy I'm like and it's got nougat in it what yeah. that sounds very foreign to me and <laughs> just and I love that Dustin's like I can eat a whole bowl full of nougat <laughs> here you go Dustin you can have all my yeah. nougat <laughs> I want to see that you're gonna make him sick. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, before that great trick-or-treating event, uh, a couple of things happen. We go back to the buyer's house, and there's another conversation between Joyce and Hopper talking about mm-hmm. that picture that Will drew. I'm glad that they went back to that because Will tried to brush it off as, oh, yeah, it's just a sketch I'm drawing for my story. You know, Joyce doesn't believe that. So there's another similar feeling scene from season one where they're sitting around the table trying to figure out what's going on. They're both smoking. And I think all of this stuff is very intentional, Adam, where we have these callbacks to, I don't know if all this happened in the second episode of the first season, but it feels very parallel. And I think it's a gentle reminder that things are not changing as quickly as they would like. And that quote, getting back to normal, it's going to be a while. So I think it was very effective to have, those types of scenes that we had familiarity with, but they added to it. And I think in this scene, I'm starting to feel like Jim and the doctor from the lab Mm -hmm. that we got introduced to in the first episode have some kind of agreement because he seems to be discouraging Joyce from trying any other method to getting Will better than just kind of following along. He said, you know, this does feel a bit like PTSD. This does feel like, you know, it's the anniversary. And so he's encouraging that kind of, thinking. And I don't think it's bad, but it makes me wonder, as we remember from last season, he made a deal with the government or with Hawkins Lab or with the department of whoever it was. Right. And I feel like this is part of it because even in the first episode, 
he seemed to look back at the doctor before he left. So I kind of feel like something's going on with Jim and the doctor and the folks at Hawkins lab. Yeah, it's a very good possibility. I think it's designed to make you question whether or not he's being open with Joyce at this point about everything that he knows, or if he's just simply trying to put her mind at ease, you know, and say, listen, you know, this is what the doctor said. Let's just go with this for now until we know something else. Let's just assume that it's just PTSD. He keeps talking about, you know, I've known guys that have gone through this and it takes time. It's a process. So he's just really trying to like play that out with Joyce and just kind of get her to calm down. They share a cigarette. They talk about their history, their past a little bit about high school. They clearly had something going on under the stairs where they would, uh, share cigarettes and they had some kind of relationship. We don't really fully understand yeah. if it was romantic or if they just were good friends. We're not, we're not quite sure, but something, something happened. Yeah. So I do think Jim cares about her still and doesn't want to, he's, I don't think he's intentionally trying to steer her off course, but I think he's trying to maybe just put her mind at ease that we're doing everything we can. You know, he's being monitored. The best minds at Hawkins lab are, are on top of it. If anything gets worse or changes, he keeps going back for, for checkups. So, yeah, I, it's it's hard to know at this point, but I think it's intentional. So you're, you're meant to question sort of where his loyalties may lie. But if we are questioning that, I would argue that no matter what, he is doing it all for the greater good of everybody because he's trying to keep everybody safe. He's trying to keep everybody from potentially being murdered <laughs> by the government agents. Because remember, in the first season, they were just like, they like just shot Benny and his burger joint. You know, they were taking people out early on. So right. that could all happen again if Hopper yeah. and his people don't play along. So I, I get that. Yeah, I don't think it's nefarious. I just, I don't know that he is confident. I, I mean, he's shooting from the hip. And yeah, like, you can yeah. tell, I mean, his relationship with Elle and what he's doing with her very much shooting from the hip. He's not, there's no plan, No, but you've got this. I just believe there's some inside information that he has that he is keeping from Joyce. Maybe these are just speculative thoughts. And it, I think it adds to the mystery of the show because it's not that I don't trust him. It's just that I think that we are that unreliable narrator. Even though we get to see mm -hmm. all these different things happening, we don't see everything. That's by design, of course. So yeah. watching them talk through their stuff, I don't think he's playing her. I think he genuinely is caring for her. But I just think he has some information that he can't reveal. Because if he does, it's going to make her go more insane or may maybe just right. make her lose it. Or at the very least, he could know that what they're telling Joyce is not true, but they may not know what the real reason for what's happening. You know, they may not understand what's going on or know why it's happening. And that's something that you never want to hear from a doctor, right? You don't want them to be like, yep, yeah, I don't know what you got, man. Just figure it out. I think they want to give Joyce some, not necessarily a solution, but she needs answers. She needs some type of explanation for what's happening to her son. So by right. telling her this, he, maybe Hopper realizes, yeah, he's like looking at the doctor. Yeah, that's not what it is. But we're still trying to figure out what it, what's really going on. <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of what I, I have a feeling that Paul Reiser doesn't really understand what's happening either. At this point, mm -hmm. he's also just kind of trying to figure it out and needs to do more yeah. research, needs to do more study 
which we also see a little more of, right? We, in this episode, we see a little more of what he's doing under the lab inside the Upside Down. So all of that is clearly all part of his data collection, trying to learn everything they can about what this other dimension really is. Yeah, and I find it interesting that I guess they've lived with the Upside Down for so long that they have this entrance, and it looks as though this episode reveals that they're using it as a power source of some kind. Because in the first episode, the electrical grid thing flickered, like that technician was like, whoa, what's going on? And I thought, oh, well, maybe the Demogorgon's coming back. But it looks like they basically have an electrical system set up in the Upside Down. Why that is, I have no idea. I don't think that gets answered, but I find that really intriguing as well. It's a very strange scene where... There's some type of something that he says was totally fried. I think he says the soldier that goes through and he like takes it out and it looks like there's satellite dishes and stuff and he replaces whatever was totally fried. And once he does that, some lights go on inside the lab and are they just creating a tether of some kind? You know, are they creating a connection? I really don't know. Yeah. Very, very cool stuff that just adds more expansiveness to the upside down because now Instead of it being a place you go to, it's now being used for something else, which I thought, right. that's kind of compelling. We've learned a lot, apparently, in the last year, we being Hawkins Lab and the folks that work there. But clearly, we as an audience don't know what that's about. So I thought that was cool. Just a quick little scene. Give us a little bit, but not too much. Yeah. And um, what we get more of is the whole pumpkin issue. Apparently, pumpkins are dying all over the place and not from the cold. As one of the farmers says, you can't right. tell me the cold is doing this. And not just pumpkins, all types of crops at different farms. Yep. So they're, of course, initially, initially they're blaming, the farmers are blaming each other, some kind of retaliation. And But as Hopper begins to investigate all the farmers who have experienced similar issues, it's clear that this goes way beyond just farmers sabotaging one another. And there's something more sinister at play. <laughs> yeah, and it's new. It's not something that we're used to seeing that we have been familiar with from the first season. Right. He goes up, sees these dead crops and other fields and stuff like that. But there's also this weird goo on Mm -hmm. some of these trees. If it's coming out of the trees, I have no idea. I will say this. I got some Ghostbusters vibes when he touched the tree and starts kind of shaking the stuff off. Totally. From that first scene in Ghostbusters where Venkman's like, somebody blows their nose and you want to keep it. Like, I really felt like that was a subtle nod. Oh, yeah. In the library, right? With, like, the card catalog. And he's like... like, Yeah, the school sample. "Ah." He's, like, flicking it. And then he goes, like... Egon, your mucus. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I think it's intentional because this is obviously an episode about Halloween. There's a lot of Ghostbuster references, the Ghostbusters costumes, the the Ray Parker Jr. theme song plays. So, I mean, I feel like this isn't just a coincidence that he's got this mucus on his glove and he's trying to get it off. And I I like the scene where he calls up his deputies like, uh, I don't know what this is. It could be toxic. Make sure to, you know, wear gloves if you're going to touch anything. And then in the background, you see the other kind of goofier deputy kind of touching it with his bare hands. And he's like, he's like smelling it, like touching his face to it. (laughs) It's like, what are you doing, man? And the other guy's just like, all right, we'll do that. So clearly that, that guy in the background was... If this stuff is toxic, he's he's in trouble. <laughs> uh, those two deputies, man, 
They add so much, uh, yeah. so much fun <laughs> to the show in two episodes. They've absolutely been a hoot. I think there was a scene at the station where yeah. we find out about more poison pumpkins and his deputies refer to all this stuff going on as a quote, pumpkin conspiracy <laughs> right. and quote, Hawkins very own Chinatown. Right. And <laughs> now I have to see Chinatown. I haven't seen Chinatown. It's a you blind seen spot Ch- Oh, it's a classic. It's so good. I don't want to give anything away, but you, yeah, you need to see it. It's one of, I think, one of the AFI 100 best films of all time. So it's it's, wow. it's up there by many critics consider it one of the very best American films ever made. So I think you'll wow. appreciate it. So check it out. Jack Nicholson, yeah. right? He's in yep, that? Yep, Jack Nicholson and it's Roman Polanski. It's okay. written by Robert Town. It won a lot of awards. Yeah, it's it's an excellent film, and there's a 4K restoration that they recently put out, so it looks better than ever. This okay. isn't a Chinatown podcast, but I, I just highly <laughs> recommend it. It's an, it's an amazing film. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit, because we haven't gotten to it yet. Jonathan and Nancy and Steve, they have yeah. their own kind of moments going on. We get introduced early with, I think Nancy's in the library, and... She thinks she sees Barb, or maybe she didn't think she sees Barb, but she sees someone who... From behind, yeah. Yeah, as uh, she's sharpening her pencil. And that really triggers something in her where she she recognizes, look, this isn't over. And she admits to Steve, we can't lie anymore. We have to tell them the truth. And Steve is really trying to get her to move on. And I can't disagree with him. I mean, it, I mean, it hasn't been terribly long, but clearly with, it seems like the whole town sort of being under this, like here's what you're supposed to say to protect the innocent. Mm-hmm. I see his point, but I also see her point. Like, I like the fact that she said, maybe we could just tell them a little bit. Like, We don't have to explain everything, but maybe we can let them know, hey, she's not alive anymore. We don't have to explain how she died. We can just get there. So there's legitimate conflict between these two, and I can agree with both of them. He makes a suggestion that let's just go to this stupid party at Tina's. Let's just act like stupid teenagers. And clearly that's not the best advice to give someone who is experiencing real trauma. And guilt. You know, it's she's yes. incredibly guilty. She even, I think, says that we killed her. Like, she feels responsible for the death of Barb because Nancy was the last person to see her alive. And there's even a great little audio moment where you hear the dialogue yeah. from that episode in the first season. She just said, just go home, just go home, because she wanted to go upstairs with Steve and make out and leave her best friend sitting outside alone in the middle of the night. So she clearly is feeling responsible. And I think for her own purposes, she needs to unburden herself of that guilt by at least giving the parents some closure that they're not going to find their daughter. It's yeah. She's at least, even if they don't tell them everything, but yeah, I think Steve has a good point that like, what are we going to tell them? Like, and like you said earlier, who's going to believe what really happened? It's, it's absurd and we can't, we can't produce a body. <laughs> so how do you prove anything that you're going to tell them? They both, I think are coming from valid points from their own perspectives. Yeah. Well, if you're the department of energy, clearly you can produce a body. Well, just, 
isn't a real body. So maybe we can well, find right. that's that's a good point. We, it, we can... they should do that. They should yeah. make a fake Barb <laughs> if they could do a fake Will <laughs> in the first season, and that way they can just put this whole thing to bed and get closure. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think you solved it. Yeah, uh, they don't have any cotton to to fill her because it's been burned or destroyed right. by some unknown entity. So right. maybe that's why there's not a fake bar because they don't have stuff maybe. to fill her up with. But <laughs> so they go to the party, and uh, you know, really, this is you know, they're not making good decisions because what good decisions no. are ever made at an '80s party with teenagers and drinking? And I think it's called officially Tina's Halloween Bash. <laughs> yes, I don't know who Tina. Yeah. Who is Tina? Did I miss something? She's just one of the kids at school, right? I mean, yeah. She was the she was the girl passing out the flyers that Jonathan right. kind of gave the Heisman to uh, right. when he walked by, and right. that um, that uh, Nancy was trying to convince him to go to. But right, yeah. I mean, I don't think she's anybody significant, at least not yet. Maybe she'll right. be like Lucas's sister. But um, <laughs> right, right, right. Apparently, Billy is the new keg king uh, at this party. Yep. He even yells. Clearly, he's got some goals that that he's setting for himself. Um, did you catch the guy in the Cobra Kai gi? Oh yeah, the, yeah. In the episode, it, and it make and it's <laughs> timing wise, it makes perfect sense. Nineteen eighty four. That's when the first film yeah. came out, so it, they didn't miss that, and it makes sense. I mean, there are a lot of people that thought those Cobra Kai guys were pretty cool. And it makes sense that the bully kids would dress up <laughs> as Cobra Kai karate students in this Hawkins, Indiana party. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they're giving Steve crap about not being the keg king, which he clearly does not really care about. Right. I don't know if that triggers Nancy, but that pushes yeah. her to go to drinking the punch that is considered pure fuel by the guy drinking it. I'm not really sure. What are she and Steve dressed up as? Oh yeah, okay. This is like this is a a really deep cut. Like it's not very obvious, but they are dressed up as Joel Goodson and Lana from Risky Business. It's oh. really very subtle. And at one point, you see him with the sunglasses on, the Ray Bans, like Tom Cruise. And it's a kind of a little bit of a callback to the first season when they talk about Risky Business, like your lover boy from Risky Business is in all the right moves and he's trying to get her to go to the movies with him. So, yeah, it's not the most obvious thing. But if you look at a picture of the two of them at the party at the end of Risky Business, that's what Rebecca de Mornay was wearing, that weird blouse with the black ribbon. And he was wearing that kind of gray suit with the black sunglasses. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for that clarity. I, <laughs> yeah. That was that was a deep cut. I was yeah. I don't think was not picking very up on many that. people picked up on that one. But <laughs> and we could spend the whole podcast talking about what other costumes we address, but those are the only important ones for me. So I'll, I'll just I'll, leave it at that. You know, when we uh, post this online, we can put a side by side photograph and show people the uh, perfect the perfect the, you know a screenshot from Risky Business of. Tom Cruise and Rebecca DeVorne and a screenshot from this episode of the two of them. Great idea. I'll have to remember to do that whenever it eventually drops. <laughs> Maybe you can yeah. remind me. <laughs> it's right now because you're listening. Everyone's listening to it right now. So it's <laughs> happening right now. All right. Well, moving on, uh, we're still at the party and this is where things really just kind of go wrong. She goes on a little bender uh, using the word we can't say on the podcast because I don't want the E next to it, but it's essentially BS shouted out about eight times. And I find it really interesting that the way that she explains stuff becomes so simplified. We get so Mm -hmm. much from her just repeating. It's all 
BS. That's mm-hmm. BS. We find out that lying to Barb's parents is that. And that eventually Steve asks her, what about you loving me? It's BS. Then you don't love me. It's BS. Apparently they've broken up or at least they're fighting now. Right. And this was something that you pointed out in the last episode when they were hugging each other. And she sort of, I didn't pick up on this, but you did, that she sort of apprehensively said that she loved him back. Clearly she doesn't love him. I'm not saying that honesty happens when you get drunk, but <laughs> the lips get a little bit looser when you're inebriated. Yeah. And so I don't think she necessarily knew fully understood, as I mentioned, what she was feeling. But I think her sort of subconscious may have slipped out a little bit here. What she didn't realize she was feeling kind of came out in the heat of this moment. And, you know, maybe it's not fully true. Sometimes people, when they're drunk like this, and she is very drunk <laughs> and does a very yes. good job. Um, mm-hmm. The performance here is is really good. Unless she got really drunk. In that case, it's just, it's not acting. It's just they got her being drunk, drunk. But, but I don't think <laughs> that's the case. BS 15 times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, there's clearly, this is a, this is clearly a rift for them and that's going to have ramifications going forward. And it will be influenced by Jonathan who shows up at the party after dropping Will off to trick or treat with his buddies. He has a great line. Um, I forget who he's talking to someone who's dressed up as the, someone from kiss, but she right. says nice costume. And he says, I'm going as a guy who hates parties. (laughs) That would be what I go as. I would definitely do that. (laughs) And it's perfect for his character. It's like, yeah, Yeah. he's sort of the opposite of his brother, you know, of Will. Will loves, you know, dressing up and just embracing the holiday. He's just like, you would never see Jonathan Byers dressing up as anything. (laughs) Just, I can't, I can't see that. (laughs) Yeah. So he ends up taking uh, Nancy home, which is... Very yeah. chivalrous and yeah. slightly inappropriate, but whatever. We're teenagers at this point. And I think he's just worried. He's legitimately worried that she won't get home safely. And I right. think Nancy got driven there by Steve. So if Steve kind of yes. stormed out, right, I'm assuming mm-hmm. he just left her at the party. So Jonathan kind of uh, did the right thing in that sense to kind of get her home he safely. Yeah. Yeah. And he does. And he's respectful. He doesn't do yeah. anything inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah. And she looks up at him and she says, Jonathan. And I was surprised she didn't say BS then, you know, because she was clearly just single wording it at that point. But she said, Jonathan, and it was very tender. Yeah. But how did he get her into the house without her parents waking up? Did I miss something? I just thought of that. That's a good question. I think it's because a scene earlier, because I wanted to touch on Mike and Will's relationship. I thought that that, that was very significant in this episode. They were talking in Mike's basement. And so I think that somehow the parents were asleep, but the door was open or Mike let them in. Now, why he didn't cause a fuss about her being drunk and passed out, I have no idea. I mean, clearly he didn't care or he cares enough about Jonathan to say, look, we'll just leave this as is. We might get some fallout in episode three. But that's my my theory is that he just let them in. And then Jonathan took her up to to her room and did his tenderhearted thing. Yeah, Could I be mean, wrong, but that's clearly it. their parents are pretty oblivious and just doing their own thing. So, or maybe they're out at a Halloween party or something. I mean, they didn't really. They, didn't they are not out this. at a Halloween party, Adam. <laughs> Those parents do not go out no. at all. Dad's no. asleep on the couch or on the, in the recliner. That's the yeah. best thing we can expect. <laughs> yeah. Probably he's probably asleep in the recliner, and they just went up the stairs because he's oblivious. He's just completely that's oblivious. Very likely, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Yep. Now I'll tell you who would be at a party. 
and that's Bob. Bob, for me, is two for two in yeah. the good guy game. I love the scene with him and Joyce playing Islands in the Stream and dancing with his best girl because, of course, he loves Kenny Rogers. You know, he offers to kind of take her away from all of this. But I love that he is not pushy about it. I love that he's not, you need to leave this because all the bad memories of this place are here and I could take you from this. No, he says, look, what if this happened? Parents have a house in Maine they're trying to sell. Clearly, he wants to get a gig at Radio Shack. Maybe he works at the local one in Hawkins and, you know, he could easily get a job at the one near the house, which I thought was hilarious. You will see soon that there is, I don't know if I should say. Don't say it. A, Just leave it. Okay. Leave it. All right. <laughs> There's a connection to Radio Shack. That's all yes. I will say. <laughs> Good. <laughs> They've just planted a seed here, but you will probably find out in the next episode or two. What a good seed to set. But it is interesting that he mentioned Maine. Of all the 50 states, they picked the state where Stephen King wrote and set most of his novels, which is clearly a huge influence on this series. So I think that was intentional. Great pickup on that. But I think geographically, it's not so far away. Right. It's not California. It's not Arkansas or Florida. I mean, it's close to... Indiana, to an extent. I mean, it's not crazy close, but it's up there in that area. But I think you're right. I think the Stephen King reference was probably the more valid reason why it was put in there. And also, I think it would be a nice sort of, from a sort of climate and geographical standpoint, it would feel very different if you're up on the coast of Maine. It's rocky coastline, very different than inland (laughs) Indiana. So I feel like it would be a nice fresh start in that sense, Mm -hmm. which I think he realizes Joyce desperately needs in order to kind of fully move past this trauma that their family Mm -hmm. experienced. So from there, we move to this other relationship that is between Mike and Will. This was definitely something that was part of season one, but because Will wasn't around per se, we didn't get to see that sort of companionship. To me, this feels a lot like if you're familiar with the biblical relationships, Jonathan, David, these best friends that really kind of are connected in a way that's very deep. And I thought this part of the episode was really cool because we see Will experiencing his episodes of not being in the upside down, but not being outside the upside down. It seems like it's triggered by stuff. Like when he gets freaked out, we get the line. There's the title of the episode, a kid in a Jason mask. Is it Jason? Some scary mask says, you know, says the title of the episode, trick or treat freak. And he goes into the upside down, but not really. The way he describes it to Mike, I think, is really great. You know on a, a Viewmaster when it gets, like... Caught between two slides? Yeah, yeah, like that. Like, like one side's our world and and the other. The other slide is the upside down. And then he describes this noise. So what we're getting is that discovery of, like, okay, here's the important stuff. Will's not in the upside down, so my theory is blown that they're not all in the upside down. They're just kind of living in this matrix. <laughs> right. But... <laughs> He is triggered in some way to get there, and he is clearly seen by this shadow monster or this cloud monster of some kind that either wants to attack him or wants to use him for something because we find out in the last episode that this monster wants to kill but not him, wants to kill everybody else. So he confides in Mike. That scene in his basement, the production setup, the way the scene is actually physically set, I thought was really cool with the candy on the floor. I mean. I just think about these little things where if you're a set designer, you're going, okay, I want to make sure that we have candy here and here and here. We well, yeah, with the camera pans up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just the amount of detail that you go into 
to set that up to tell us, oh, clearly they just dumped their candy on the floor and they're eating it while they're talking, which is, yes, something that kids do, but it just looks good. Like it's really good production value in terms of how you set that up because it could have just been lazy and like, let's just dump a bunch of three musketeers on the floor, but that wouldn't be realistic. Right. No, these kids would have gone right to town, you know, eating as much candy as they could, you know, when they got back and it's realistic in that sense. And, and I agree with you that their friendship is clearly the strongest among this group of four friends. And I think they touch upon this in the first season, how they, have been friends the longest and like Dustin, I think moved to town sometime a few years back. You know, he's more of a new addition right. to the, to the mm-hmm. group. And he's the Winston. And, he's the Winston. Yeah. 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 And, <laughs> exactly. and I think just in general, the other friends, you know, they pick on each other, they make fun of each other, but I think Mike and will have a more genuine, I think they go deeper in their discussions about what they're feeling and thinking than the others might. And I think that's yeah. something that is revealed a little more in this episode. You mentioned how they use that analogy of the Viewmaster. I actually think, based on this episode, what we're seeing, one thing to add is that there's a video camera in this episode that Bob Newby shows Jonathan how to use, and then Jonathan gives it to Will to take on his trick-or-treating adventure. And when he slips into this sort of trance and goes to the other to the upside down you see him drop the camera and i think also his candy maybe but something else falls to the ground maybe it's part of his costume i'm not sure and when he comes back the camera's not there so it's possible that he's actually in both places at the same time like almost like the those slides are overlapping at, at that moment i know he describes it as between but i almost feel like he's kind of his body is in the regular world because they can all see him, but he's also, for a brief few moments, in the Upside Down. That's kind of where I'm leaning at this point. I don't know if that's exactly correct. Yeah, it's a good theory, and it makes sense because that was a question I had. Where'd the camcorder go? Right. You know, it, it, was not, it did not show up again. So that makes me wonder if he physically is in that place and in the real world, Maybe that's a mechanic that we're going to explore in this season is, okay, can we be in both and what does that mean? So I'm hoping if that's the case that we get more of that. And we will because it's Stranger Things and the production value just increases with each season. So I'm not worried about that, but it intrigues me and and impresses me more than anything else, Adam, that you take an idea from the first season and you expand on it. Right. The upside down is now a mechanic. It's now something that is potentially being used. It is now a place that can be accessed beyond just these little entryways, maybe. Right, right, maybe. Yeah. The ability to expand, yeah, the ability to expand it is is really fascinating. One of the other things I wanted to mention about Will and and Mike's relationship, I think it really is sort of culminated in a statement that a line that Will says, where he says um, he tells them not to tell the others because they wouldn't understand, and then Mike says eleven would, and I love it when Mike says. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm going crazy. Me too. Hey, well, if we're both going crazy, then we'll go crazy together, right? Yeah. Crazy together. Yeah. Clearly, Mike has this connection with Eleven. And by the end of the episode, Eleven, of course, is disappointed that that Hopper is late by, like, what, 
seven hours. It seems like it, no, it's not because it gets <laughs> yeah. it gets darker earlier. But right. by a few hours, it's way past five fifteen. That's all we know. Yes, it's, well, it it's, <laughs> it's it has to be because we're seeing everything. I think in this episode, kind of intercut in real time, and the kids were going trick or treating from like seven to nine, I believe, and then they cut to Hopper still, you know, investigating the forest and the pumpkin patches and the, the crops and so clearly it's it's somewhere towards the later end of that trick-or-treating window and that's much later than 515 or 515 yes. yeah. and he didn't have candy so he had to essentially bribe a kid one of the farmer kids <laughs> for his his own halloween candy to take back and give to 11 because uh he promised her among other things they would get fat together eating candy at 5.15. And so... And watching did, a scary movie. And watching a scary <laughs> movie, yeah. It was a whole fun Halloween evening planned. Well, clearly they can't watch TV together because she has taken the television and put it in the bathroom. And it, this is this is what's funny is you're so used to her powers that I didn't even blink when she was changing the channel with her mind. I thought that right. was just like, oh yeah, that's what Elle does, you know? Yeah. Who needs a remote when I don't think those exist? But watching her go through that, we get to see a little bit more of... Again, this expansion, expansion of communication, mm-hmm. the Morse code earlier, I didn't realize that he was communicating to her through Morse code. And I think that was not only just a way to communicate because they didn't have walkies and that she didn't really have that communication skill, but I think it's a survival skill too. You know, mm-hmm. Morse code is going to be really important. I feel like that's going to be an important thing. I find it interesting that she turned that Morse code machine off before she goes into the bathroom. Don't know what that's about, but whatever. I think I know. I think it all ties into what happens at the very end here. She was attempting to create her own sort of sensory deprivation experience. So she turns off the Morse code so she doesn't hear any beeping. She blocks out the sound so she doesn't have any distractions, you know, by turning on the television to the white noise. It creates like a blanket sound, you know, that just kind of blocks out any other sounds. And she covers her eyes with a blindfold. She's doing her best to sort of do a rudimentary sensory deprivation tank experience so she can try okay. to reach out to Mike. Cause that, that's okay, what, that makes sense. Yeah. But I find that that advancement of communication for her is interesting as well. The ability to put a blindfold on. I thought the static from the television was sort of a callback to Poltergeist at the ability to communicate through the static. And maybe that was, maybe it was the noise, but it might be the, it's not the visual because she's clearly not, you know, seeing anything, but I think you're right. The ability to just hear the noise and to block everything out. Right. It's just kind of, it's like a calming, steady noise. It doesn't change. It kind of, and, and it would block out the sounds of squirrels outside or anything else that might be outside that could sort of take her out of her trance that she needs to get herself into to yeah. use her powers optimally. But that, like you said, this is her evolving and growing. She's clearly able to do this now on her own without all the assistance of a bathtub and 100 pounds of salt and <laughs> all the things that they had to do in season one for her to, to attempt to reach out the way she did. And she does. She is successfully is able to observe Mike sort of talking to her on his walkie-talkie in her little basement fort. She is not successfully able to communicate, I would say, with him, although I think she might kind of senses her, I think, for a moment, perhaps. It's kind of not spelled out whether or not they really connected or not, but it was close, I would say. There was right. a, there was a, a near connection being made. Absolutely. And so after that, the show or the episode ends with um, 
<laughs> with Dustin reenacting or trying to talk like a Californian earlier in the episode when they're trick or treating. Right. <laughs> it's between Lucas and Dustin. They're like, it's, it's like, it's like totally tubular. Totally tubular. What another way, dude. Totally I think it's just to make Mad Max laugh, but that joke kind of comes back at the end. And then he realizes something's in the trash can. And I think it's his cat named Mew is his, is yeah, his name. Muse, I think it is. Muse, M-E-W-S. Is, yeah. yeah. That he yeah. thinks. Yeah. And this was a little bit of a pickup from a seed they planted in the first episode of the season where right. he keeps hearing sounds in the garage and then the trash can and then it kind of rat, yeah. but he, you know, he goes inside and it, then it starts rattling. So there's clearly something in that trash can and he thinks yeah. it's just his get, cat. Yeah. yeah. He, he gets his proton blaster that he admittedly <laughs> yeah. said it's not real, but you know, you got to grab something and opens the trash can up and we get that great shot from the inside of the trash can and him reacting. And the cut to the Ghostbusters theme to end the episode. Right. So a fun cliffhanger. I think we can assume to, based on his reaction because he says, holy S-H. Yeah. It's something. I, I, it's not his cat. It's not. <laughs> it's not Muse. That's not Muse. It's definitely not Muse. What I think is interesting is the tone of that makes me think it's going to be some kind of like pet that he ends up owning and it becomes part of the gang because <laughs> right. of the way that he doesn't freak out. It's not a jump scare. The music obviously doesn't make that kind of assumption for us. And so if it's Slimer coming out, if he's eating garbage right. out of the garbage can, then yeah, that'll... Or a, a, a mogwai. A mogwai. Yeah, I thought that too. It was a gremlin. I thought, are we getting a gremlin? Are we going to just <laughs> go full on? Like... Of, of the characters of these four kids i feel like dustin would be the one most likely to take a stray alien and or interdimensional creature in as a pet (laughs) just seems like it would be right up his alley and he would keep it you know he's like elliot from et he just yeah keep him just more concealed obnoxious about it yeah exactly like i imagine (laughs) if there's a small creature that he can pick up and put in his room He's going to bring that thing to school the next day and be like, dude, look what I found. (laughs) Right. He's not going to be able to keep it a secret for very long. He's got to show it off. The sad thing is that creature's not going to like any Three Musketeers. And so he's going to be really disappointed that yet somebody (laughs) else from another planet doesn't like Three Musketeers. And he's like, dang it. But I also just love, like you said, I love the... The cut to credits with the with the Ghostbusters theme song. That was just a great way to wrap up this kind of halloween episode this ghostbusters themed episode it just it all kind of comes full circle at the end here yep well that will do it for this episode of an original series adam what's next on the slate well next up is chapter three colon the polywog and this one <laughs> is directed by sean levy so we're uh we're getting oh, the first man. non-duffer brothers directed episode of season two so Good I'm excited deal. for that. Yeah. Well, the name sounds like, okay, that's what he found in the garbage the can. Polywog. Yeah, it does sound like that's you know, just Mogwai. Polywog. 
Grogu. I don't know. That's Baby Yoda. So it could be Baby yeah. Yoda. <laughs> if that shows up, I'm out of here. I'm like, dude, that's just crossing too many properties, streams, whatever you want to call if it. We're not doing that. That showed that up from a 2017 TV show. Something's wrong with the space-time continuum because they would have predicted Grogu years before the Mandalorian uh, even aired. Right. Or I don't know uh, if you yeah. can say aired, streamed. Yeah, because that's the the <laughs> world we're living in. Nothing airs anymore, yeah. just streams. Nothing airs. Nothing goes out over the airwaves, although it does in this show. <laughs> Eleven is clearly watching television over the air, if you will. Over, yes, she is. Antenna. And she watched yeah. a commercial for the Terminator. I don't know if you caught that. She, I that was did fun. catch that, yes. And in the last episode, it, the Terminator is, in fact, playing at the local cinema in the town. Oh, so, so maybe it's a... maybe it's come to VHS. <laughs> maybe. At this point. <laughs> or just might be telling people, go see it in the theater. That could be. It could just be a TV ad for the theatrical release. But could I don't be. Know. Anyway. It was re-released that year in Hawkins because they don't have much to do these days with right. all their gourds right. getting getting <laughs> destroyed and <laughs> yeah. crazy people trying to mow down Ghostbusters with their car. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Hawkins, people. We're, we're back. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right, everybody. Well, thank you for listening as you do always. Uh, we will talk to you next time on Original Series or at least talk to each other. So I'm Patch. Yes. He's Adam. <laughs> And we are out of here.